Thank you for listening to the Rivers Church podcast with Pastor Andre and the Rivers team. Be sure to subscribe for a weekly dose of encouragement and inspiration to help your daily life. We pray that this message will help in whatever season of life you might be in. And I want to quote to you what George Sawyer said in a book called The Resurrection of Authentic Manhood, Restoring God's Original Design. How many of you know that's a great title to read because it tells you what God expects from you? And he says you're a real man does not lead by intimidation or fear, but by the power of his character and the inspiration of his identity. Now he says, He knows his identity comes from Almighty God. He understands that he's strongest when he's on his knees in the presence of God. He's truly powerful when the Word of God is dwelling richly within him. This is the man God created you to be. You are his representative on the planet. We got to know who we are. We must understand what biblical manhood looks like. Otherwise, we won't be able to rebuild it. And it largely stems from our identity, who we think we are in God, who we know we are in God, and how we understand ourselves to be. And at the moment, I want to look at the first section here tonight as we go straight into this. I want to look at the problem that men are facing and why it's so important for us to rebuild biblical manhood. And uh, biblical manhood has been tripped at and eroded over the last 30, 40 years, and it's getting worse and worse. And the feminization of men is a real thing. Men no longer know what they are. The fluidity of gender has invaded our world. And now we dare not say what a man or a woman is or dare define what a family is. We have been shut down as Christians and we've had to accommodate people lest we be, you know, we're called bigots or we're called out for it. But we have to know who we are because everything flows from our identity. And when you know your identity, then you are a representative of God in that identity. And we need to know our our roles and our responsibilities. You see, what gender fluidity has done is it's spoken about gender only in sexual expression. This is who I feel I am. This is what I want to do sexually. But men and women are defined by roles and responsibilities. And when you remove that, it only becomes about sex. And so we've got a massive problem, and that's why we must rebuild the concept of biblical manhood. Men need to know who they are and what they've been called by God to do. And especially in an era where there's gender fluidity and women are rising up in the workplace, rising up in the world and having their rights, men need to understand their place and who God has called them to be. Now, the reason that gender and sexuality is messed up is because we're not anchored to the Bible. Interesting thing in the scriptures in Zechariah chapter 5, and we don't have time to read it, but it talks about a woman in a basket being called evil. And uh, in the Hebrew, the, the, the evil is a feminine gender. And this basket is up in the air being carried by two birds, and it's been taken to Babylon. And the implication always in the Bible was when men don't stand up, then women would run riot and evil would prevail. And so it's very important for us to understand what's happening in the world because evil is rising up and destroying our concept of who we are. Now I'm going to read Romans chapter 1 today because we need to understand the devolution of man. There's this claim that, you know, we came from the apes, but actually we don't come from the apes, we come from God. And if we think we're getting better, We are on a completely wrong footing. We actually are getting worse, and that's why the world is getting worse and worse, and that's why there's so much confusion. 
And I must lay this foundation for the sake of those who've not heard this. Forgive me if you're hearing this over and over and over, over the last while. It's a big issue in our world. So Romans chapter one, and I'm reading an, a number of verses here. It says that the wrath of God, the judgment of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So, so they do evil deeds and they, they, they squash the truth of God. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, even the unchurched, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him, worshipped Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So when you take your eyes off God and you no longer look to Him for identity, look to Him for purpose, look to Him for meaning, for your roots, for your beginnings and your end, that's when everything goes wrong in here and in here and then there's complete confusion. He says here, although they claim to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. So idol worship, false religions, all that sort of thing is an alternative to God, and that's huge today. People worship all sorts of things, statues in the garden and all that. They've replaced the living God with images. He says, therefore, God gave them over. In other words, he let them go down that road. And uh, uh, let me pick up here. He gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Materialism, he then says, amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. So they lost sight of purpose here. And we're not attacking this. We're just saying this is the devolution of man the loss of identity and the confusion of behavior. And it's not only sexual, so don't think I'm beating a drum here. I wanna show you the entire picture of where crime comes from, where, why humanity is in the mess it's in, and why it's so important for Christian men to stand up and to model what God intends. Now, it's a long passage, but I do wanna get through it. He says here, in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men, we can't accommodate this because this devolves man. And it says, and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, verse 28 is important. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. So not only do their desires get depraved, their thinking is completely distorted. And he says here, so that they do what ought not to be done. Now, here's the reason why I have a problem in the world or the problems in the world. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossip, slanderers, god insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. That's the state of the world. This is where we get all the crime from, and we think we can solve it with a political decree. No, many to stand up and be the men God intended and reverse all this stuff in the world. And he finally finishes off, he says, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, these very things, but also approve of those 
who practice them. Culture is not evolving. Culture is devolving. And if culture is devolving, we're going from being sons of God, Psalm 8, to being beasts. We're not going from apes to being sons of God. It's the exact reverse. And men need to know that this is a problem in the world and anything goes. And, and we can kind of start thinking God made a mistake with the genders. God made a mistake with women's roles. You know, we're living in modern times. But we have to get back to what a man is. And here's the thing. If you don't know what a man is, how will you raise men? If you're a father tonight or a son, you don't know how to behave. You don't know how to raise your sons. We've got a massive problem. And we've got to understand the benefits of a man's role in the world. Now, in the world today, we have a thing called anti-patriarchy. People are against the hierarchy or patriarchy of men. In fact, they insult men, talk about grabbing men by the patriarchy and bringing them down to earth. And the reason is because we don't see godly men. Most men don't serve God. You'll remember even in the early times, it was only Enoch in Genesis chapter 5 who walked with God and God took him. Most men don't serve God. So people like Harvey Weinstein, who was using his power and his money and his influence to abuse women, that's the model that's seen in the world. They don't see the Christian model. And then when Christians rise up and say, you know, God's called me to be the head of my wife and to lead my home alongside my wife and to lead my children, they were ah, anti-patriarchy. But patriarchy is extremely important, and we must build men up, not beat men down, by understanding that patriarchy is about passing on to the next generation. And the devil wants to do everything he can to stop you and I from passing on a legacy and from being patriarchs in our homes. Think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, father, son, grandchild. You see, God wants us to pass it on. And we need to be like Enoch. We need to be the only ones who serve God. And then in our generation, we can pass it on. Maybe you didn't grow up in a Christian home. Maybe your father doesn't serve God. It's time for you now to be the patriarch and for you to serve God. David was a patriarch. And patriarchy in the Bible is not spoken of as negative. It is spoken of something noble, a model, a righteousness that's passed from generation to generation that changes the earth for good instead of the devolution of the earth which is the problem that we're facing right now. I hope this is making sense to you as we dig into it tonight. And we need to walk with God and we need to understand that patriarchy is not bad. It is actually God's model. And uh, we read about this in the Old Testament. And again, Stephen repeats it in the book of Acts. And I want to read Acts 7 and verse 8 just to make the point, because this thing is being beaten on and knocked down, but as a Christian, you need to know you're not a Harvey Weinstein. You don't fit in with that group of people. You stand differently with this problem in the world. There's a different model, and we're going to come to it in a moment. Acts 7 verse 8, it says, And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Patriarchy continues at leaders of the home, role models, in the face of a devolving society and culture. And we need to understand how patriarchy works. It's not a domineering. It is like the Trinity. You see, we've been made in the image of God. And I'll talk about that in a moment. The Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each has a role. Each has a function. And they all work together without competing with one another. 
And that's the relationship that we need to have in our homes. We need to lead our homes. The Father leads and the Son submits, but He also has a role to play. And the Holy Spirit doesn't say, I'm left out. He functions too. And patriarchy is necessary for any society to have a healthy function. That's why in Romans 13, I said this on the weekend actually, God would rather have imperfect government than no government. That's why he says we must respect authority because without authority, without patriarchy, there is no sound leadership and no sound balance in the world. And man must lead with his wife. He's a co-heir with his wife. The, it's singular leadership, but sorry, singular headship, but plural leadership. Singular headship, he has all the responsibility but plural leadership, husbands and wives do it together. And uh, you heard that so appropriately discussed by Pastor Dean and Jeanette, and we won't take time to look at it. But interestingly, Ephesians 5 and verse 1 says this, submit to one another. So before we even talk about wives submitting to husbands, we submit to one another like the Trinity does, and then we do away with this problem of anarchy, rejection of authority, and each person doing as they like in the world. Now, I've looked at the problem. I want to look at the second category here, the search. Because God is searching for men. He says in Ezekiel, I looked for a man. And uh, wherever you see in the Bible God starts something, He always chooses a man. He started with a man called Adam. And then when Adam failed and sin entered the world and wickedness came, then He chose a man called Noah again. He always wants to start with a man, the leader, the seed bearer, the initiator, the adventurer. God needs you and I to stand up, and he's searching for us. And throughout the Bible, we see that God used men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David. And so right into the New Testament from the prophets, we, we see people like Jesus, the son of man. And then we see the 12 apostles, ragged men, and we see the early church with the Apostle Paul leading it, and uh, a tough man, a man's man. And so God is looking for men like you and I, and he wants us to stand up, but we've got to know who we are if we're going to stand up and restore biblical manhood. And God always starts with the man, because the key word here is not that he sees men as better than women, but men are responsible because they are initiators and seed bearers. Women are receptacles. They receive seed and nurture seed. A man plants seed and initiates. And so when God wants to initiate something, he wants to make a change in the world. He says, I want men to stand up and speak it. I want them to plant seeds through the word. I want them to speak righteousness, live righteousness. And God is searching for men. And you know, if you think about it today, we think we can solve everything by politics. Well, I believe that we don't need any more prisons or any more police if we had men in the home. If men were doing what they were supposed to do, you wouldn't have so many criminals and unruly children and uh, prisoners because the home would deal with those things. We don't need more uh, political decrees to solve gender violence and more shelters for women if we had men who understood their role in caring for women and dealing with conflict correctly. We don't need more abortion clinics if men would take care of their offspring. Even if they made a woman pregnant outside of marriage, they would understand, I'm responsible. God is looking to me as the man, and he's looking for men who will stand up and create 
And so we don't need abortion clinics. We need men to be men. We don't need more child grants. We need men who will take responsibility for looking after what they have created. It's not the government's responsibility to look after your family and your children. It is yours as a man. Even if you've made a mistake, you thought, you thought you were in love or whatever you did, you didn't wear a condom. No, no, you need to take responsibility because that's what men do. They don't walk away from responsibility. And often men leave things to women, but God is searching for you. And he's saying, where are you? What are you doing with your children? Are you watching your kids? It's not women's work. You need to see what your kids are exposed to. You need to check on what they're watching on the internet. You need to have a good look at their friends. When friends come, don't sit in the lounge watching TV. You go to the door and engage those friends and assess their attitudes and their characters because that's what men have to do. Men are always the answer to the problems in the world, not more government programs and not more government money. And I want to say this, if you're a man, don't abdicate your responsibility financially or emotionally and then make it the church's problem. The pastors are not here to fill in for what men don't do. Men need to take responsibility and God is looking for us. And uh, you know, if men were men, you wouldn't even have poverty in the world because men would take care of their own. And I want to say that God is searching today for men. Are you going to stand up and be one of them? If you are, then let me get to number three. This is how. And I hope you're receiving something today. The model. We've looked at the problem, the search. Now we're going to look at the model and we're going to unpack this under several headings. What is the model? What does the Bible say? Well, let's look firstly at the Bible, Scripture. That's our first section. We need to look for a model. There are other places we can look for models, but we're going to start with Scripture. And uh, George Sawyer, again in the resurrection of authentic manhood, he says this, he says, when God created man, he didn't look at the animals, he didn't look at the plants, he didn't choose any other pattern. The first thing God did was to create the earth and to fashion it. Then God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the triune God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. The model for manhood is God. Who God and the Trinity are is our model for manhood and leadership. I mentioned their relationship, how they relate and don't compete, yet are incredibly strong and initiate everything in the world, including creation. You are made in the image of God. Don't demean yourself. Go to the scripture for your identity and realize that God needs you and wants you and you are the answer to the world's problem when you discover who you are in the scriptures and from the Bible. The early world was started with man at the center. When it failed, God used a man again called Noah at the center. And when it ultimately failed, he brought the Lord Jesus as a man in the center and rebuilt everything again. And uh, just looking at this biblical model of, of, of what a man is, first thing is we see leadership. A man needs to be a leader. He needs to be an initiator. He needs to teach and guide his family. And, and really, uh, this is not a domineering. This is an influential role. Your family is not an army. You don't wake up in the morning and say, right, troops, assemble in the kitchen. Are you already? Yes. Yes, sir. No, you need wisdom. You need to influence moody children, even a moody wife sometimes maybe. And you need to lead, but not with a domineering Leadership is influence, it's not domineering. It's not taking Ephesians 5 and saying, there you go, and using it as a weapon. It is actually influencing and steering and guiding your family. And uh, 
it's, uh, it, it's an interesting thing. When you fail to take leadership in your home, listen to me today, Satan will take the leadership. If you look at the Garden of Eden, it was absolutely perfect. And for a perfect marriage and a perfect home to be destroyed is for a man not to take up his leadership. In that vacuum, Satan will destroy the perfect home and the perfect marriage and will step in and lead it and take it down an ungodly path. You see, we always look at Eve as the sinner, but she committed the sin called a sin of commission. She did something wrong, but the man, Adam, he committed a sin called omission. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. And God has made us to be leaders and we're supposed to lead, but not lead with a domineering, lead with an influence and a steering and a guiding and a wisdom. And that's why when Eve sinned, God didn't come to her and say, what have you done? That's what most of us would have done. Eve was the one, let's nail her. No, he asked Adam, where are you? And that's the big problem today. Absent fathers, absent men, sin of omission, not doing what we're supposed to do because we're confused. We don't know what the model is and we have to go back to the Bible and find what the model is. And let me say this, most of us will have been raised on the first Adam, but our model has to be the second Adam. Let me explain this to you by reading 1 Corinthians 15. Many of you know what I'm talking about, but for the sake of those who don't, it says you're the first Adam made of earth, came from the earth. The second Adam came from heaven. We all know that. Those who belong to the earth are like the one made of the earth, live by feelings, impulses, disobedience. Those who are of heaven are like the one who came from heaven. So we need to lead like Jesus. We need to understand the biblical model for leadership comes from the Trinity. And we need to take our responsibility and fulfill what God has called us to do on the planet without apology. And if we do that, we will make a big difference in our world. Second thing in the Bible, looking at the Bible as a model, is men are meant to be developmental. We're supposed to improve everything wherever we go not maintain it or let it deteriorate. We're supposed to go to work and make a difference. Go to church and make a difference. We need to initiate and improve. We need to be at work improving things, not just in a job, passing the time. And, uh, and, and, and can I say this? If you're looking for the ideal job as a man, there is no ideal job. You create the ideal job. I, I get very annoyed when men say to me, I, I'm waiting to see what comes up. In the meantime, you're not paying your bills. In the meantime, you're leaning on the church. In the meantime, you're hoping that God will provide. And he says, no, you're the leader. You're meant to lead. You're meant to initiate. You're meant to be a developmental person. And if you can't get it at this level, get it at this level and then grow it. But don't sit around and expect it to come from heaven. That is not faith. That is abdication of responsibility. The Bible is extremely clear. And then the third thing I want to say is leadership. But then responsibility. It's, it's, it's leadership. It's development, but in its responsibility. The man is responsible. We are not being made for sport and pleasure and games and cars only. Those are wonderful, fun things. They give us a break from the humdrum of work. But we cannot live for those things. We have to live for responsibility. And responsibility carries weight. It puts a weight on you. And that's what men are designed for. That's why our upper body is stronger. God has made us stronger than women. The Bible says she's the weaker vessel. Her body is different to us. And we need to recognize that we're meant to carry responsibility. And we're not just born to play. And if you're wealthy and you don't have to work hard and you've got a good income and you've got resources, 
doesn't mean, oh, well, now you can do that. You're still not fulfilling your biblical mandate for manhood. Many of you would remember the story of Peter Pan, the well-known nursery story or uh, the, 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 the story by uh, J.M. Barry. And I was reading about this in a book called, by Ben Sass called The Vanishing American Adult. Very interesting book. In fact, it would be good for many of you to read it. But he says is the, the, the children uh, are staying kids into their late 30s nowadays instead of growing up and becoming adults. And he, he says here, Peter Pan is a story about a boy who refuses to grow up. We often misremember it as a cheery fairy tale. It isn't. And then he says in the end of the Peter of J.M. Barry's classic, is not at all a commendable hero. He's selfish and short-sighted. I don't want to go to school and learn solemn things, Peter tells us. I don't want to be a man. He ultimately cannot remember his past and thus learns nothing from it. Near the end of the book, Wendy tries to reminisce with Peter. Who is Captain Hook? He asked with interest when she spoke of the arch enemy. Don't you remember, she asked, amazed, how you killed him and saved all our lives? I forget them after I killed him, he replied carelessly. And then he says, although Peter never grows up, each of his lost boys does. So does Wendy. She has a daughter, Jane, who visits but eventually flees from Neverland. And Jane has a daughter named Margaret, who similarly refuses to be trapped in Neverland. And on it goes, everyone moves on except for Pan. Peter never changes. He never grows up. You know, if you want to show what it means to grow up, it means to carry responsibility. Some men can't do it in their 30s. Some men can do it in their teens. And responsibility is what the Bible teaches we've been designed for. And we have to grow into that role and carry responsibility, then you develop as a real man. But the fourth thing the Bible speaks of, not just leadership, not just developmental, not just responsibility, it speaks about the spiritual role of a man. Under God, men represent God as I opened with, and we lead our homes and our nation. But in order to do that, we first need to be obedient and walk with God ourselves. You can't lead other people into obedience if you are living in disobedience. And all God's greats prayed, walked closely with God, and were God's representatives. And so we understand here now some of the roles that we see from the Scriptures. But now I want to just, in looking at the model, look at some uh, biblical role models, because we can read the Scriptures and read the detail of what we should do, but then what about the biblical role models? There's so many we can look at. And I love the biblical role models, especially Jesus and the Apostle Paul, two incredible ones, Moses, uh, men like David. You look at the prophets, look at Nehemiah, Ezra. And, uh, you know, how did they live? How did they conduct themselves? They weren't spectators. They made a difference in their world. And by looking at their lives, you can say, hang on a minute, I can... I can relate to that. Nehemiah is kind of like a business person. He's like in the political role. Oh, I see. He had a heart for God. He had a burden for the things of God. He didn't just work for money and was involved in politics, but he understood the Bible. He understood the scriptures. He understood the promises of God, and he made a difference. And so we can see from other people, and especially from biblical role models, how we ought to live. And sadly, what has happened in the church is there are less and less biblical, rather less and less role models, that we can look at. You know, the church has been highly feminized in the 20th century. They said that as the industrialized age kicked in and men went away to work 
and worked in industries that wore them out. They were exhausted, uh, coal mines, engineering, the, the trades. Women took over the church and women ran the church and ran Bible studies and Sunday school and the church became feminized. The buildings looked feminized. You know, most uh, pulpits uh, 30 years ago, the entire stage was covered with flowers. Now, wonderful decor, but it's, it doesn't le lead to men feeling like, oh, I can relate to that. That's why you'll notice the Santon, Belito, Carlami buildings, very, very manly, raw concrete. There's a car in the foyer. There's a racing car at Kailami. And uh, you go to Belito, there's raw brick. The buildings used to have banners with little silky, lacy things on, with little drawings on with women dancing with tambourines. Very sweet. But it's time for men to start being role models and understanding their spiritual role by looking at the spiritual men in the Bible. And we've um, got to recognize that when Jesus led those fishermen, they, they responded to him because they were manly role models. And I want to just look here. Uh, at, at a book called Manhood Restored. And I hope you're receiving something as you're watching this on screen. I hope you're connecting with us tonight and making notes. But Manhood Restored by three authors, and you can see them on the book here. They say, what else would make 12 manly men drop their former lives and become fishers of men? Compelling, risky, Jesus-centered, gospel-driven, vision-rendering, divine results is the secret source of changing men's attitude toward church. Men want to be part of something that matters. Apostle Paul was like that. He was, he was driven. He wanted to be part of something manly. He went there with courage. They beat him up. They stoned him. He got out of that situation, shook the dust off, and began to preach again. These are not weak-kneed people. When you look at the Bible, you get these wonderful role models. Uh, in, in the book, they go on to say, Paul was called to travel, raise money, plant churches, be shipwrecked, beaten, see visions of heaven, preach the gospel where it hadn't been preached, discipline. Disciple men, develop leaders, go to territories where Jews were hated, to kings who could kill him and be chased by thieves. There's nothing effeminate about following Jesus. The Bible, the scriptures, these role models, fantastic. But I want to look at a third category today because we're talking about the model here. Where can I understand what it's like to be a Christian man? Well, I want to look at living role models, living role models, fathers, and men that are alive today that you can look at. And uh, the Bible tells us here in Hebrews 13, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he's saying, have a look, not just the Bible, not just at biblical role models, but look at the people around you who are currently in your world, in your church, what are they like? Have a close look at them. And then firstly, look at their function. Look at their function, their, their responsibilities. How do they act it out? How are they living out God in their lives and in their families? Watch them closely and then copy them. Because if you're trying to copy the world and accommodate the world, you're going to get completely confused. But you need to look at the Bible, the Bible role models, and then look at living role models and their consistency, their discipline, and uh, do they know the word? Are they, are they like Jesus? Do they influence and lead their families? They don't dominate. They've got something you can learn. Have a good look at them, spend time with them, and ask them questions. Second thing to look at is not just how they function. Look at their behavior. Are they men of consistency like Jesus? Are they men of discipline? Are they men of loyalty and faithfulness? 
commitment, generosity. How do they live their lives? And if you can see their behavior, you say, I want to be like that. That's what biblical manhood looks like. It's not about the size of your biceps. And if you work out, that's great. Many people in our church do. Many men are into bodybuilding. But that's not the definitive way to define manhood. We define manhood by our character, our function, our behavior. And then listen, by their thinking. How does a biblical man think? And we need to be thinkers. Christianity is not just emotional. And that's why often in churches, uh, the church became feminized, became highly emotional. But Jesus was a thinker. Jesus sat down and asked them, what do you think? And he, he, he showed them a coin. Whose inscription is this? He told parables. A man went out to sow. And he explained complex truths because he understood the world he was living in. He understood the scriptures. He knew life. He knew people. He knew God, and he was a thinker, and Christian men need to be thinkers. We're not just emotional. We don't just come to church and shake and behave strangely and then go into the real world and wonder, how do I live? No, we need to be thinkers, and you need to mix with people of knowledge, people of intellect, people who have intellectual strength and can give answers and uh, can help us discern 1 Peter 3 says that you must always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. So it's not just something I feel in a church building, but I'm a biblical man because I've seen it replicated in others. And that's why we like men to be thinkers. Even in this message now, you have to think. I'm not just stirring you up, be a man. Come on, be a man of faith. I'm getting you to think this process through, make some notes, and then look at the living role models. And we've got a, a Bible that teaches us scripture, our responsibility, leadership, what we're called to do to be spiritual leaders. And then we've got the biblical role models and we've got living role models across our campuses that you can look at, our campus pastors and many, many others, thank God, in our churches. I now want to look at number four and I, I, my time is running out, but I'm going to get there. I want to look at the uniqueness of a man or the uniqueness of men. So important that we understand that God has made us different in design, but equal in standing before him. And uh, men, because they are different, doesn't mean they're superior, just means they have a different function. And we have removed the distinctiveness of gender, and now we don't no longer know what to do. And so it's important to know that uh, biblical manhood is clearly defined by the differences between men and women. I feel sorry for people who are gender confused. But here's the thing, don't make me confused too. If you're confused about the way you feel, I can't live my life by the way I feel. I have to live it by what I know to be true. Anytime I line up my life with my feelings, I'm heading for trouble. And I'm heading for devolution instead of growing and maturing in God. And so we need to understand the differences. A woman's body is weaker. I've said it already. We've got men in women's sport because they feel that they are a woman. It, it's, it's, you can't feel you something. You either are or you aren't. And as we know so well, that a man has certain chromosomes and a woman has certain chromosomes, and we need to recognize the differences. It was interesting that Serena Williams was in an interview with David Letterman, and she said that Serena Williams is a, is a, is a stout and muscular tennis player, and she said, Andy Murray would beat me in five to ten minutes, six love, six love, uh, if he played against me because men are completely different. 
men's tennis is completely different to women's tennis. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to eradicate that today to make everybody equal. No, we are different and we need to recognize that so that we can accommodate and understand. Now, it doesn't mean because men are different that they must abuse their wives and must disrespect them. It just means that we must treat them differently and we need to lead them differently. And, and men need to persuade their wives and, and, and lead their wives without domineering, without being selfish, without abuse. A man must serve his family. His wife is there to nurture the family and he must cover them by carrying the responsibility even though his wife co-leads with him. A man must, must, must be responsible to love his own wife, not to love other people's wives or other people's girlfriends. We must love our own wives and we must care for our own homes and recognize that that's the thing that our wives need most of all. A man is responsible for the home. That doesn't mean he must make sure that there's crockery and cutlery and, and you know, men must also wash the dishes. Now, I think we, we, we miss it. A man must make sure that the atmosphere in his home is one that is good and happy and is spiritual. The upkeep of the home is a man's responsibility. It's not the woman's. Although at home, Pastor Wilmer often reminds me, it's bin day. And I, oh yes, I forgot. And I do it willingly because it's my responsibility. But we, we're responsible for the upkeep, the painting, the maintenance of our home. We're responsible for its atmosphere. We're responsible for its spiritual dimension. That rests on us because we're stronger and we've been made in the image of God like Father God to carry that role. And so it's singular headship, plural leadership. Now, I want to deal with two extremes, and I hope to get through this. We, we, we're nearly done. There are two extremes in the world, and this is why we have a lot of problems when we look at the difference between men and women. The first one is chauvinism, and I want to define that for you here. It, it's, it's being a bully. You don't take advice. You're harsh. You're ungodly. You make the decisions. You abuse your wife. There's always conflict in the home. The woman has no freedom. She doesn't have any money. She's subservient. She's got no independence of, of, of any kind. You make all the choices for her. She's got no opinions, and she's treated as a second-class citizen. You know, you secretly think that she's like less than human. You would never say that, but that's the kind of concept and it gets ingrained in men because they grow up in homes like this. And uh, the woman's bossed around and she's literally a servant that the husband sleeps with. That is chauvinism and it's mistakenly called manhood. I'll tell you what, I don't want my daughter to be married to someone like that. And I thank God that she isn't. Now here's the other extreme, feminism. We go from chauvinism, where it's overbearing, to feminism. Women push back. They take over and lead. They push aside a man's role, and we're in a democracy where everything has to be divided 50-50. And we only make decisions jointly, otherwise she throws a fit, she sulks, and she has moods. The money, independence in the home, there's no such thing. She works, and so she's got to say, and she'll tell you that regularly, or she will withdraw her money and spend it as she wants. He's only, he, he's only the head while he's the breadwinner, but while both work, the whole thing changes. And men become feminized because they cannot make decisions. They are now rendered ineffective. They even become stay-at-home men. And the woman works, and she's the domineering one. And we take on a political view of family and gender, and the man doesn't grow and develop in his responsibility, neither physically, spiritually, or emotionally, or financially, and he lets himself uh, be castigated and he doesn't know his place. And as a result, he is confused 
He's emasculated and weak, and that is not God's picture of biblical manhood. And sadly, that is the picture in many Christian homes today. And uh, we've, got to, we've got to be real men. We've got to stand up and recognize that manhood is not a social construct, but it is a biblical construct, and we need to follow it and lead our families in it, and it's going to take time. You can't just go home and say, Pastor Andre spoke on this, and I just want to tell you, and this is what we're going to do. No, you need to gradually steer it and guide it because that's what leadership does. Your home is not the army. Your home is a family. And like God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, you need wisdom in leading it. Now, in a book called Out of the Ashes, excellent book by Anthony Esselin, he says, as for there being what is called socially constructed, no. Our customs are rather established upon the firm and unchanging basis of human nature. That means we must cease the destructive chatter about gender roles as if they were thoroughly arbitrary and built upon nature. There is no human masculinity out there free-floating in the space of ideals. It is always grounded upon physical and psychological basis of the human male. When a man is a man, he is not simply playing a role, he is fulfilling his being. In other words, God made you to be the leader. You take after God the Father. When you lead your family, you need to recognize that God created family. Even the church is a family. And so when you function as the Godhead and as God intended biblically, then everything starts to work. And church is meant to be like that. You know, I just want to remind you, I'm like a father in the church. And that's not to take on some superior role. It's because you father people, you guide them, and you too are a shepherd and father of your own family. And you need to recognize that and take that role and not back down from it. That's why we've got so much strife in the world is because men are not stepping up and they don't know what to do. They have the fear of being old-fashioned, the fear of, oh, they, they're going to think we are. It needs courage to do what we're doing, and we need to have that courage and step out and speak up. And as I close here today, I've just got a few minutes. I want to give you three reasons why men lose leadership. Why is it that we, where we go wrong, and then and this is what happens, we lose our leadership, then we blame our wife. Uh, but my wife doesn't let me, and I have tried. No, no, no. Here are three reasons, and it relates to Adam. Number one, men lose leadership when they abandon it like Adam. We will always lose our leadership when we commit the sin of omission like Adam, and we abandon it. Adam wasn't around when Eve sinned, and men need to take up their leadership and not abandon it. And you find men are often brilliant leaders in the workplace, but when it comes to the home, they blame their wives, they abdicate, and they're never around, and they're always playing sport, or they're out with friends, or even involved in spiritual pursuits, but they're not taking leadership of their home. Number two, men lose leadership because they dominate. They shout, they insult, they're always angry, abusive, unloving, selfish. And why should anyone listen to you in your home if that's how you are behaving? You dishonor and disrespect them, so they will dishonor and disrespect you too. And no woman or child is drawn to an angry, domineering, insulting, or abusive man that is not the role for biblical manhood. And you will lose your leadership and then you can blame your wife. Yeah, but they don't listen to me. Well, either you're not around or you try to dominate instead of influence. And the third reason is this. 
Men lose leadership when they disqualify themselves through sin. When we allow our own desires to destroy our homes and our ministries, adultery, porn, uh, drunkenness, unfaithfulness, inconsistency, we're untrustworthy, we get our families into debt, we lie, we hide things, physical abuse, laziness. No, we need to stop that, we need to repent because either we can just, you know, abandon it or we over-dominate or we actually disqualify our credibility because we're not following the biblical role of manhood set out in scripture, set out by biblical role models and set out by the role models that we have in the church. And it takes time to rebuild trust. If you have failed in this area, you need to repent. And then you need to go to God and say, Lord, help me. It, it, it can be broken down quickly, but it takes time to restore. And I want to restore my family. I want to get it back to where I'm the spiritual leader of the home without domineering. And I understand what biblical manhood is. It's being the leader. It's being someone who plays a role of responsibility it's someone who's the spiritual head who shows the way and knows the way. And, uh, you know, we can change our attitudes right now. We can adopt an attitude that is different. We can change our direction. Can't change the fruit of it immediately, but we can begin to go in a new direction and we can change the course of our lives. And uh, I want to close with this quote because I think it's so true of all of us men. Uh, the man's Owen Feltham the English author, and I quite enjoy some of the things he said. He said, all men will be Peters in their bragging tongue. And most men will be Peters in their base denial. But few men will be Peters in their quick repentance. Isn't that true? We're quick to brag. We're quick to deny. But when it comes to Peter re repenting, very few of us can respond. But you know what? We should. We should say, Lord, I haven't got it right. I haven't got it right. I thought I could get it right. I've missed it. I've messed up. I know where I've messed up, but today I determine to rebuild biblical manhood. I'm not going to be intimidated by the world and its value system that chips and erodes. I'm not going to look at the devolving of man and say, oh, I need to embrace that. We need to bring that into the church because that's, no, no, that's the devolution of culture, society, sexuality. No, I need to stand up and go in the opposite direction. And I need courage to do that. I need strength and I need courage. Craig D. Lounsborough, uh, I, I failed to mention this quote earlier, but I do think I want to close with it today. He said the following, and uh, he said, showing yourself to be a man is certain to garner the rejection of a culture that's too frightened to do what you've chosen to do. We hope you have been blessed and inspired by this message.